If you have a copy of God's Word, let's look together this morning in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at chapters 15 and 16. So I'm going to read to you all of chapter 15. But if you have a copy, please uh, keep it open because I'm going to refer to verses in chapter 16 because this all fits together. So here's where we've been so far. I've given you the four preliminary principles for weeks. And so we're going to pa- I'm not going to do that this morning. But I am going to tell you where we've been so far in the book. So hopefully these two chapters will be situated some specific place and not just a random looking at these chapters together. So Revelation chapter 1. Remember it tells us in verse 19 that John writes these things that talk about the past, the present, and the future. So if you've ever been told that Revelation is all future, that's not right. If you've ever been told that it's all past, that's not right. It's a book about the past, the present, and the future. Chapter 1 also tells us in the first verse, first phrase, that it's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a great big billboard, verse 1, first phrase. So if you've ever been told that this book is really about darkness and the kingdom of darkness and evil and how it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until at the very last moment, Jesus swoops in and changes everything. Sorry, that's not the message of the book. If you've heard that book, I'm really, if you heard that explanation of the book, I'm really sorry. It has brought about a lot of confusion. It's made the book of Revelation seem very disconnected from the rest of the Bible. And praise God, it isn't, no matter how much we might miss it sometimes. Revelation fits with the whole story of the Bible. It's not this random book that just has a different message than the rest of the Bible. Then most importantly about chapter 1, the other chapters we'll go through a lot more quickly. Verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us that this book was written to be a blessing. So if you've ever read this book and someone explaining it has instilled fear in you because of this book, you've missed it. They've missed it. This book is not meant to instill fear in you. It is meant to be a blessing. It is not meant to confuse you. It is not a code book. It is not a puzzle book. It is not that you have to crack the code or put all the pieces together with the minutest detail to understand what's actually happening. It's a picture book. It's meant to be read like a child so that your imagination, your gospel imagination is fired up so that you can see with your soul and hear with your soul and live in accordance with your soul because your soul's imagination has been touched with who Jesus is and what he has done. It's meant to be a blessing to you. Chapter two and three, Jesus writes seven churches to, I'm sorry, Jesus writes letters to seven churches that are meant to represent all of his churches throughout the world. Chapters four and five give us the one reference point for the entire universe. And what is that? The throne. We have hammered that over and over and over. Chapters four and five are profoundly important to understanding the book. The throne room, chapter four and five, the one reference point for the entire universe. Chapter six through verse five of chapter eight give us the seven seals. Chapter 8, verse 6 through chapter 11, give us the seven trumpets. Chapters 12 and 13 and 14, give us the counterfeit, meaning the unholy trinity, and the counterfeit message that goes along with the unholy trinity. So we looked at last week. Now we're in chapter 15 and 16 this morning, in which we're looking at seven bowls. I know it sounds absolutely thrilling, doesn't it, to think about seven bowls. 
So let's read chapter 15. I'm going to read it, and um, you try to take this in, and then we're going to pray and see if God can help us understand it. So listen to this. This is God's Word. Here we go. Can we make sure? Haven't quite memorized all of chapter 15 yet, so I had to make sure I had the verses in front of me. All right, here we go. This is God's Word. Listen to this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? Well, let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Lord, act on us again and again and again. Lord, keep us from coming here. Keep us from coming to worship because what we're really after is tips and techniques and ways to more efficiently get what we want out of life. In other words, keep us from coming to worship where our hearts want to learn greater dependence on self. Keep us from that. Help us to come to worship because we want to learn greater dependence on Christ. And we want to know more and more of the power of his cross and the power of his resurrection. We want to know more of walking in the power of the Spirit. Lord, increase that desire in us to be more like Jesus, to be greater, to have greater influence of the Spirit at work in us. Again, for your glory, we pray. Amen. So a familiar roadmap this morning. We're going to try to see what John saw. And then we're going to think about the so what. You got me? So we've been, this has been our kind of uh, outline for the last number of weeks. We're going to try to see what John saw and then so what. What does this mean for my life? So let's just jump right in. So you notice around verse 5 or following of uh, chapter 15 that what we find is that there are seven angels that are coming out of the sanctuary and what they have, excuse me, they are, they are dressed in uh, 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 linen garments, meaning that there's a priestly function to them. And if you don't know what that means, it just means that there are special people designated to go into God's presence, to represent God's people, to go before God, to hear from him and understand his ways and understand the gospel. And these angels dressed in priestly garments come out of the sanctuary and they have been given seven bowls of the wrath of God. Sounds great, doesn't it? Great, so we got to talk about the wrath of God today. Yep, we do. 
And these seven angels issue forth from the sanctuary, from the throne. And they unleash these bowls. Now, chapter 16 identifies what happens to these bowls and how they're unleashed. So if you still have your Bible open, look at chapter chapter 16. You'll find out that the first bowl was unleashed on the earth. The second bowl was unleashed on the sea. The third in the rivers. The fourth in the skies, or the sun in particular. The fifth at the throne of the beast. The sixth with the river Euphrates. And the seventh at the very end is actually unleashing the final judgment, the coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. That's what we find in these chapters. So that means the first four bowls, the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sky, are meant to communicate that God's wrath is unleashed on the earth, the world. And that should be no surprise. I'll tell you why. Jesus talked about this. It's part of the reason why he came. And not only that, but God tells us to the Apostle Paul that in Romans chapter 1, that God's wrath is actually in present tense being revealed right now against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. Present tense. So that even in the first century, the wrath of God is being revealed in the world because God is not happy with sin and rebellion. A holy God is not happy with rebellion and sin and wickedness. It just, he's just not happy about that. And you gotta know that. And the evidence of his wrath is seen everywhere because he's upset that sin is, as it says in Romans 1, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, meaning that there are people who rebel against him vertically, and that's not good. And there's sin and rebellion horizontally between human beings, and God is not pleased with that either, such that the wrath of God is always visible. You can see it. You can see that there are consequences for rebellion. You can see it. You felt it in your own heart and in your own life. You try to live without God and you realize the emptiness of that. You try to define who you are and make your own identity, define what you think is right or wrong, and you realize that we have individualized ourselves to death so that everyone just does what's right in their own eyes and what ends up happening? Chaos. It's a consequence of rebellion. And we can see it everywhere. Well, that is what John sees. And if we see what John sees, then we see that these seven angels have gone out and distributed the wrath of God throughout the world. And bowls five, six, and seven. If the first four directed toward the earth, five, six, and seven are specifically addressed to the counterfeit. In his message, in his plan. And it's telling us that the wrath of God is also revealed against the unholy Trinity and all that he's trying to do. And specifically with the seventh bowl being revealed, it reminds us, and the sixth one as well, he can't win. Evil never will get the last word. It won't. Evil will never overcome God. Evil will never overcome God and his goodness and his plan. This won't happen. So if you have a sense of that, then you've seen what John sees in these chapters. Now let's get into the so what. 
What does this mean for my life? Why would God care that I understand about this stuff? What is, how is he getting the gospel into my life through looking at chapters 15 and 16? How do these seven bowls connect with the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done, what he's accomplished? How does this all work? I want you to be thinking about that. Because when you read these chapters, you might instinctively think, well, this has no relevance for me other than I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to think about it. I certainly don't want to experience this, and um, I just want to stay away from it. But God is actually getting the gospel into us through these chapters. Four things. So what? What does this mean for my life? Four things. Here they are. Number one, repetition. Number two, connection. Number three, relationship. Number four, destiny. So we're going to work our way through these four things. This is the so what. First thing is so what? Repetition. Beloved, God gets the gospel into us by repeating things over and over and over. There's a reason why we confess our sins every week. There's a reason why we hear God's assurance of pardon every week. There's a reason why we hear God's blessing at the end of service every week. Because we need the repetition. God wants us to look at the world in a very specific and certain way. And he repeats these things throughout Revelation so that we'll look at the world from the vantage point that he wants us to see the world. He'll tell us over and over and over, this is how you're supposed to look at the world. This is what I want you to think about when you look at the world and think about reality. This is why the number seven and the cycles that we've talked about over the last few weeks make sense. There are seven churches, right? There are seven seals, right? There are seven trumpets, right? There are seven bowls, right? All of these are cycles by which God is communicating something to us. He's trying to get us to look at the exact same things from different vantage points. Do you follow me? The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the events of the world. They're all talking about human history just from different vantage points. Do you remember the seals? Who is worthy to open the seals? Do you remember this? Christ is the only one. What did the seals represent? They represented God's plan for, the, for all of time until Jesus returns. And who is worthy to show us God's plan? Christ. And what is the one reference point for the seals? The throne of God, right? It's the one reference point for everything. Then we looked at the trumpets, and they're a little bit different than the seals. Same things. It's still talking about the same events. It's still talking about all of history. But the trumpets are communicating how darkness is trying to thwart the plans of God, and they are going to be unsuccessful because from God's vantage point, which God wants us to see this and recognize it, they're limited. Their time is short. And their ability is significantly hampered because of what Christ has done. Same events, same things, just a different vantage point. This is what the great enemy of God is trying to do. And he's limited and he cannot, and he cannot succeed. The seven bowls, same things, talking about all of history from a little bit different vantage point. This vantage point is telling you what God thinks about sin and rebellion in the world. 
It's telling you from God's vantage point what he thinks of darkness and sin in the world. Other times he was saying he's limited, but here he's telling us that he's not, he doesn't like it. He's upset with it. His wrath is against rebellion and sin and darkness. And he's also telling us again that they can't, that darkness can't win. And the reference point is the throne for all of these. Everything is centered on the throne. Where did the angels come from? The throne. We're going to tap into that more in a little bit. God is repeating this for us because if we want to understand the gospel, we've got to remember that the gospel is God-centered. The gospel is looking at everything through his view, through what he says. So he has plans for the world. Yes, evil is real, but it's limited and it, can't go the, only, it can only go but so far. And then yes, God is upset with sin and wickedness and darkness and he will bring it to an end. God writes us to repeat this over and over and over to get the gospel deep down into us because some days we need to remember God has a plan. Some days we need to be a little bit more truthful about the reality that evil and darkness is in the world instead of just trying to ignore it, instead of thinking that we can, that primarily our job as parents is just to protect our kids, not to prepare them. At other times, we need to be reminded that as angry as I am and as angry as you are about things that are going on in the world, God's angry too. And we shouldn't forget, oh yeah, I contribute to this. I'm part of it. I'm connected. And he repeats these things to get deep down into us that we need to look at the world the way he does. Second, not only does he repeat, but he really is trying to connect with us. He really is connecting with us. He's connecting us at a very, very deep level. Perhaps there, are, I'll say it this way, and this is, a, this, is somewhat of an, this is somewhat of an opinion that you may disagree with, no worries. I can't think of a more vivid and graphic depiction of God's will intersecting with me living in a fallen world than what we have in, in these chapters, 15 and 16. I don't know of a more vivid depiction of trying to discern God's will and that with how it works out in a broken world. And that God is telling us, no, I am absolutely in control. And yes, it is true that there is lots and lots of darkness. And this is what it looks like. And God's not happy about it. Now, do you notice in chapter 15 what God's people are doing in verse 3 and 4? Because this kind of presses this in a little bit more. This idea that God is trying to connect with us, this idea of the reality of God's will and living in a broken world. I mean, listen to these verses. Listen to verse 3 and 4 again of chapter 15. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you hear that? I mean, you read those words in... in, in you get the sense that God's people are here praising God 
And what they're saying in these words of, Lord, the nations belong to you and your righteous deeds have been revealed and, and who can stand against you? You get the sense that they're saying, Lord, how long? How, how long till these words are literally true? How long until you rule over the nations and all evil is put down? How long? How long will it be? It's an idea that permeates the Psalms and permeates other parts of the Scripture. Lord, how long until you are literally ruling over everything and all evil is put down and you are all in all? How long? Sound familiar? Let's press that even further. Lord, how long until the lie is no longer in existence and the truth reigns? How, how long until my heart is not drawn to the lie anymore that I can live without God and make it on my own without him? How long till my heart is, has, has no uh, uh, desire to believe that lie? And how long until my heart is free to just believe the truth? How long? And beloved, we, you realize that we say that first about our own lives and then we start go from here like to others, right? We don't, we don't just say, Lord, how long until the lie that people believe out there is no longer? Starts with us. How long till our hearts don't believe the lie and we just believe the truth? How long until, Lord, we aren't drawn to what is ugly, but we are drawn to what is beautiful? How long till gossip doesn't have any pull or attraction to me? And I just want what's beautiful. How long? Or how long until goodness is what my heart always desires rather than what's new or what's shocking? How long? How long until my heart just wants what's true and beautiful and good. It doesn't want anything to do with what's a lie and what's ugly and what's not good. How long? Those that are praising God are crying out, Lord, how long till these things are so? Third, relationship. If we're to understand the gospel more deeply, we don't just need to hear it over and over again and get the God-centered view deep down into us and work out all of reality from the vantage point of the throne. We don't just need to be reminded that understanding God's will and how that intersects with a broken world is really difficult and should lead us to cry out, how long? And should lead us to further specify, Lord, how long until I want what's beautiful, true, and good only? But we need to understand this relationship between the wrath of God and the love of God. Because we'll never understand the gospel if we don't understand how the wrath of God and the love of God relate. I'm borrowing these ideas from someone else. These are not original to my own. I'll tell you that on the front end. I'm not going to read you the quote. I'm going to work it out for you as best I can in little bite-sized pieces. Beloved, remember, the opposite of love 
is not wrath. The opposite of love is hate. If you truly love something, you will be angry and you will have justified wrath at whatever is destroying what you love. If you love your child, you will be upset and angry at the sin and at the evil that is destroying them. And that will frustrate you because you love your child. The opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is hatred. And do you know what the final expression of hatred is? Indifference. The ultimate expression of hatred is indifference. I don't care. And we live in a world that is full of indifference. Full of it. We live in a world that is full of hate. There is so much hate that still stays within us, doesn't it? But beloved, the wrath of God is an expression of his love. He can't stand to see his creation be destroyed by evil and darkness. He is angry with that. And even better, he's done something about it. It would not be truly loving. You can't be truly loving if there is no expression of anger or wrath. If that can never be on the table, then you don't know true love. And we also live in a world that defines love as unqualified affirmation. That's not love. That's really just another way of talking about indifference. That's just another way of saying, you know, you do whatever you want. I don't care. That's not love. That's hate. And beloved, when you go back and read this, what you will find is that the wrath of God is always intended to lead to repentance. That's why when you look in chapter 16, you look at verse 8, and you look at verse 11, and you look at verse 21, you will find that there are those who refuse to repent. The wrath of God being revealed, the consequences that we see because of sin are meant to lead us to God. They're not meant to make us hardened against God. When we sense the consequences of our own rebellion, it should lead us to say, Lord, I need you because He's showing us that we do, that we can't make it on our own, and that if he just leaves us alone, if he just leaves us to do whatever we want, we can't even make ourselves happy. We aren't even capable. If that was our only job in life is to make ourselves happy, we can't even do that. That is a millstone around our neck. That is an expectation that we can never actually meet. God's wrath is always meant to lead us to repentance. And not only are there those who endure the wrath of God, which all of us have been under by nature, we are all children of wrath. But not only are those who refuse to repent, if you look at verse 21, it even says that they would rather curse God. That's not a good position to be in. And if you're upset with God or angry with God, hear me. I would love to talk with you about that. 
I would love to give you a space in which you can express your anger and frustration with God and work that out and think about what that means. Because you need to hear that the love of God is connected to his wrath and anger. He's angry because he loves. And he's angry in order to lead us to repentance and to come to the one who has taken all of the wrath of God for us. And his name is Jesus. Fourth and finally, this is the last one we're going to talk about. Destiny. Beloved, you do realize that the gospel not only needs to be repeated to get into us, and not only connects with us at a super deep level to understand how to live in this world, which is really confusing. But the gospel is, is to help us understand the relationship between the love of God and the wrath of God because we see it in Christ. But it also reminds us of our destiny. You do realize that everything is moving towards something, right? Your life is moving towards something. The world is moving towards something. Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything, whether you believe or whether you don't, everything is moving toward Jesus. Every moment, every event, every joy, every sorrow, everything is moving toward Jesus, and you can't stop it. It's going to happen. Christ is going to return. This is talking about destiny. It's talking about our destiny and the destiny of the world and the return of Christ. Did you catch, please, did you catch the first couple verses of chapter 15? Let's go back and look at this together. Before the song came, remember? Before there were those who were singing the song and praising God. Did you notice what was going on before that? The people of God were standing at the sea of glass. Where's the sea of glass? The throne. They're there worshiping God and praising God, and we get a little sample of what they're singing. And what are they singing? They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Did you catch that? Do you know what the song of Moses is and the song of the Lamb is? The song of Moses is that we are being brought out of bondage and into life with God forever. We are being freed from our bondage so that we can be in the presence of God and with his people forever. This passage is telling us that God's people are experiencing less and less bondage and more and more freedom and life because of what God has done through Jesus and bringing us through the true exodus out of bondage and into true life with God. And that means something else. Do you realize where God's people are positioned when the angels that have the seven bowls of wrath are then dispensing those bowls of wrath throughout the earth? They're watching from the shore. Beloved, the wrath of God is being poured out in the world. And as followers of Christ, we are observing the wrath of God being poured out. We are no longer receiving the wrath of God because Christ has received all of God's wrath for us. Do you see? 
This is telling you that you are living in a world in which you will see the wrath of God poured out. You are living in a world in which the powers of darkness are out to destroy his plan. And that means that you might be persecuted and put to death for following Christ. Have you forgotten what we talked about last week? Chapter 13, verse 10. If it's our time to be taken captive, then to captivity we will go. If it's time for the sword, then by the sword we will be slain. This is a call for endurance and faith. Beloved, as followers of Christ, we will see the wrath of God. We will experience and be recipients of the powers of darkness. But it doesn't change our position. So we can't understand how God thinks about us through our circumstances because we understand what God thinks of us through the Savior. And that, mean we, that means we live for him in the world. This is our destiny, to live for Christ and to seek first his kingdom and not be distracted by what is unstable. We ought to assume that the world and the powers of this world and the plans of this world are unstable. And assume it. And we ought to be obsessed with what is invincible, which is ours through Christ. And that means something else. When you go back through and read these chapters, you'll notice that the bowls are building up to this, the return of Christ in, in, the, in the seventh bowl. And the sixth bowl mentions this battle. Oh, this has way, way, way significance for our destiny. This battle was worked out and as, the bowls, as the sixth bowl was poured out into this place called Armageddon. Maybe you've heard about this before, perhaps in a wrong way. You see, there's this battle that has always been waging between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. It's always been waging. And John mentions this area of Armageddon not because he has given us longitudinal and latitudinal coordinates. He's communicating a message with this. See, this is the place which Again, it's not coordinates, it's an image, it's a representation of something that we should connect with. And that is this. You ready? Victory. Victory. This was mentioned with one of Josiah's wars, and it was mentioned way back in the book of Judges with Deborah. This is a place of victory. This is not a place of torment, and if you've ever been taught to read this and think, oh my goodness, this is horrible, I don't want to be around, I hope I get raptured out, I wish that I could just eject that from your mind. Because that is not what this book is saying. It's not what this battle is wanting you to want. This is meant to communicate to you that victory is absolutely certain. It's meant to communicate a place where God defeated enemies and you didn't expect it to happen. In other words, if you're a Duke basketball fan, This was uh, 2015 in Indianapolis when you won the national championship. If you're a Carolina fan, this was 2017 in Glendale, Arizona when you won the national championship. If you're an NC State fan, this is 1983 in Albuquerque when you won the national championship. You've probably never been to those places, but you think about them and they excite joy and thankfulness because of victory. And there are lots of you in here that have plenty of other teams. I just can't go through them all. The point is the, the, the place is mentioned to communicate victory, the victory of God, not to scare you, but to bless you and encourage you that the battle's already been won. 
And the last thing about your destiny and this whole section, look in chapter 16. If you will, look at verse 17. Because these words are repeated. You might recognize them. It is done. Those words sound familiar to you. Can you think of anyone that said words like that or similar to that before? How about if I change and say, instead of it is done, it is finished. Does that sound familiar? Do you know who recorded those words for us? The Apostle John in John's Gospel. You realize he's bringing them back up here? Why is he doing that? Because ever since Jesus uttered those words in the first century, they have had power. He actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection so that through the echoes of history, it has always been reverberating these words among others. It is finished. So that as you sit here today, it's done. Redemption has been accomplished and victory is certain. It's done. It's finished. And you know what we'll say for all of history and for eternity? It is done. It is finished. Because Christ has actually accomplished something. And even at his second coming, in which evil will be put down finally and forever, and evil will be taken out of our hearts and out of the world so that we will only desire We will only be capable of desiring what is true and beautiful and good. It'll all be because Christ said, it is finished. And that means this song that's sung in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, about the nations belonging to God and his righteous deeds being revealed... It means on that day we'll sing the song of Moses and freedom and the song of the land, which is true freedom. And all will be amen and hallelujah. And we will rest and we will see. And we will see and we will know. And we will know and we will love. And we will love and we will praise. Beloved, behold our end, which is no end. And that's what brings us to the table.